of Atlantis. Your foul species is hereby banned from the seas and oceans of the world. Any who enter the waters will face my wrath. Imperious Rex! Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Third Degree Burn. I am Tim Elliott and I have with me Kirk Greenfield. How are you today, Kirk? Hi there. And we are going to be covering, uh, it's just going to be the two of us in this show, and we are going to be covering Namor Submariner, John Byrne's uh, reboot, relaunch uh, from the 90s. And this was my idea to cover this, Kirk, because I know you had previously covered Namor uh, in a podcast you said you did a, a few years ago with your daughter. So I thought, well, you, you know, Namor must have you know he must have a special connection to the character so that well let's kirk and i get on and we'll talk about namor what is your history with the character i mean why do you or do you have a special connection to this guy oddly enough i do um my first exposure to namor was back in the 1960s as the fantastic four were being published or printed up with uh, jack kirby and stan lee the initial collection although I didn't think of it that way, that I purchased from a school white elephant sale just before the summer was um, a collection of Silver Age books that had been coming out in 64, 65, 66, probably right off the rack by some older kid. And I grabbed as many of them for a nickel apiece off the table as I could. Included in that run were Fantastic Four number 17, 22, 25, 33, 36, and 39. The reason why I mentioned the numbers is because they're seared in my memory. And if you're familiar with them, you'll recognize that there are different characters and different adventures in each one. 33 features the pivot point where Namor goes from being an antagonist to a sympathetic protagonist who needs the Fantastic Four's help. So I read and reread, and I still have that issue, which has a photorealistic cover of uh, Undersea Coral with the title side by side with the Submariner. And the whole shtick is Lady Dorma, who's never been seen before, comes to the FF, asks them for their help because Prince Namor is overwhelmed by a new threat under the sea a barbarian horde being led by Atuma, the first time he's ever seen. But Prince Namor is too proud to ask for help, so she has turned to the Fantastic Four, asks for their help. They figure out how to breathe underwater. They go down, and without tipping their hand that they are fighting at his side, they level the battlefield and using their powers uh, for the hour that they can breathe underwater. They even the score just a bit, so it's a fair fight between Namor and Atuma. Atuma cheats. Ultimately, they run out of air. They have to escape. They have to get off the ocean floor. They do. Namor's never the wiser that he has been assisted. He's very happy but tired. Dorma is very pleased that she's helped her prince, but he doesn't know. And Reed Richards is very happy because he realizes that Sue has seen Prince Namor, who it's been a love triangle for the last, you know, 30 issues or so. But this time she hasn't said anything sympathetic about him, that 
you know, she sees him, but she hasn't swooned for him. And he thinks maybe there's a chance for me yet. And that's the beginning of the proposal arc that leads to their wedding. So what I'm telling you is that's the, the initial point where I where first was introduced to, to Namor. I also happen to have Daredevil number seven in that collection, which is the Daredevil versus Prince Namor, where he tries to sue the human race. But while he's away, Warlord Krang seizes control in Atlantis um, and they get word to Namor, hey, you've got to return immediately and put down this this uh, armed insurrection. And so he leaves. That sets up Tales to Astonish number 70, which is Namor's first solo strip that's only half of the book because it's a split book with the Hulk in one half and Prince Namor in the other. And that begins a storyline called The Quest, where Prince Namor has to uh, find the trident of uh, Father Neptune to prove that he is the rightful, um, not heir, but the rightful uh, sovereign of Atlantis. And it's very much a soap opera drawn by Gene Colan, uh, although he first uses the, the pen name Art Adams, I believe. Um, so that's the, uh, the that's the plot for the first Aquaman movie where he has to get Neptune's Trident yeah. to, yes. to overthrow okay. the throne his brother. Interesting. I'm surprised somebody didn't sue over that. <laughs> Anyways, it's a soap opera very much in in have you know 10 page or 11 page installments, depending on the length of the book each uh, time. It ends with a cliffhanger. It's very much like the old Republic serials that uh, Indiana Jones was uh, patterned after the first movie was was inspired by mm -hmm. the memory of those. So, you, you know, it ends on a cliffhanger each time. If you don't get the next issue, you don't know how he, he did, you know, escapes that cliffhanger. And then a new problem is posed. It's, uh, you know, the arc runs about five or six issues. And we stuck, um, you know, the, the artist had apparently an 18 issue or a year and a half contract to do this before Bill Everett took over the series. Bill Everett was the original artist for... Namor, yeah. and uh, and the flavor of of the strip just changes dramatically over one and two issues. He ties up this long ongoing storyline very quickly, and then launches a new cast of supporting characters, which has a strong emphasis on Atlanta. On a sorry, I keep saying that not Atlanta, Atlantis, and the royal court. Um, so. The point of telling you about the tales to astonish is that is the focus of a, another podcast that my daughter and I did probably, oh, I don't know, five to ten years ago, um, where we examined each installment one at a time of the quest arc. And ultimately, it went about 18 episodes for our, our podcast and covered each of those first 18 issues. Ultimately, she had to leave home, so I had to wrap up the last two Bill Everett uh, installments in one episode rather quickly. Um, but that's that's okay. The, the flavor of it just changed. If you're interested in that podcast, it's called Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader. And it's a little tongue-in-cheek. It's not quite as reverent as we are towards Burns' work because it's a different time period, and my daughter... 
a different generation. She likes to poke holes at the uh, the logical errors and the the art errors in the book. So I treat it, you know, very reverently, like they're chapters of the Bible. And instead, she comes on and says, you know, why is that fish swimming through the open window? Why don't they have screens <laughs> on the windows in uh, Atlanta or in Atlanta? So <clears throat> you can search it, but you won't be able to find it on Two True Freaks. You won't find it on iTunes or Apple Tunes or any of the major uh, networks. I think you'll have to search it, and I, I can't remember where she hosted it. I think it was on something like Discourse, or maybe it was on Etsy. I'm not sure, but if you do a search, you might be able to turn it up. There are only 18 episodes, and it is an index show very much. So, uh, But that's not why we're here. We are here to discuss John Burns' series from the 90s yeah did you uh well i'll, I'll give my real my my uh history of the namers it's much quicker i i had a pocketbook you know marvel would put out pocketbooks that would collect you know mine it was i think it was the first one i bought and it was fantastic four and it had the first six issues of the ff in pocketbook form yes and i think i got that on my 12th birthday. This is for I was even collecting comics, but I picked that up and I'd read that. I, I can, I've got that memorized. And that introduces Namor uh, into the, the Silver Age, which I thought was a brilliant way to bring him back, to have him just have lost his memory and kind of walk around and be a, kind of a homeless guy until Johnny yeah. Storm finds him. And, and I thought that was a brilliant way. It's, it's up there with bringing Cap back. Um, yes. And it's in issue four. Yep. Just like Cap. So that was my that was my history with him because he's in that uh, that issue and uh, six sixth issue where he kind of teams up with Doctor Doom, and uh, Doom betrays him for the first yeah. time. <laughs> of course. Uh, so that that was it. other than that, I, just when he would pop in from here and there, I wasn't necessarily a, a Namor fan. I've always found him to be. Uh, not a, even when he was introduced, not as a straight up villain. He, I think that uh, Stan does give him a little bit of a sympathetic background in that, you know, he's been lost for twenty years. How long he's been roaming the streets, and he comes and finds that his 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 people are gone, and he thinks that from all the atomic testing, it has disrupted their city or destroyed him. So naturally, he's uh, a little upset with uh, the the surface dwellers um and it's interesting that when we get into this issue we're going to cover burn addresses that right off the bat <laughs> as to kind yeah. of his name or his entire history you want to get into it uh do you want to hit his prior appearances just in a short list in case anybody wants to go go find them yeah yeah uh, I'll, I'll leave that up to you because you probably have that off top of your head, and I don't. My head. Obviously, he comes to the Silver Age in Fantastic Four number four. Uh, hey, Lindsay, uh, where is our podcast on Namor hosted? Right. It's it's on t Tumblr. Yeah. So if they search for Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader. Okay. Serial surface invaders is the key expression, the character string that you want to search uh, for on Tumblr. Sorry, I. 
and and so uh, they should still be there. I'm sorry, I was telling you where uh, Namor shows up. Uh, FF4 and 6 that we just mentioned, he returns three issues later in number 9, where he's grabbed a bunch of uh, treasure off the floor of the oceans and has set up a movie studio where he's the executive. Uh, and he lures the Fantastic Four into making a movie for him, which is really a series of death traps to eliminate them so he can woo Sue instead. Issue 14 uh, the Submariner returns, but he's been mind-controlled by the Puppet Master. Uh, ultimately, he breaks that, uh, or the, the control is lost, and uh, the Fantastic Four realize that Namor has been acting out of character a little bit by this in that particular episode. That's a one-issue shot. The next time he shows up is in the incredibly long and deeply textured Fantastic Four Annual Number 1 which is including a history of Atlantis, the birth of um, the birth of the Submariner. It's a it was a landmark issue because nobody had ever put out an annual that deep, that texture, that long, and it's you know a, a tremendous uh, volume. It's the first of the F Fantastic Four annuals. His next appearance is Fantastic Four twenty seven, which is uh, he he finally. He wants Sue, and he kidnaps her and tries one last time to convince her that she should be with him rather than Reed. Never mind the fact that she can't breathe underwater. <laughs> uh, Doctor Strange intervenes. Reed is fighting mad. Doctor Strange assists them in uh, trying to keep Reed and Namor from killing each other. And ultimately, when Sue finally says, stop this fighting Namor, don't you see it'll never work? My heart belongs to Reed, and Namor goes nuclear. And just before he can explode, Doctor Strange magically whisks the FF out of there. And so we don't know how Namor deals with his rejection. He just, that's the end of the episode. The next appearance, as I just described to you, is FF 33 where Lady Dorma first appears, a love interest for Namor, and asks for the FF's help. And I believe the next time he shows up is in Daredevil number seven, where he enlists the aid of Matt Murdock to sue the human race. Um, and that begins the storyline of the quest in Tales to Astonish. The only other time that I can re Oh, I skipped over the, uh, the appearances in The Avengers. Um, he shows up in Avengers number three, where he teams up with the Hulk against the Avengers. Uh, that partnership doesn't go well. And then in issue four, he finds and frees accidentally the body of Steve Rogers from the ice, and Captain America returns to the Silver Age. Um, so that, those are his two appearances in the Avengers. The only other time that I recall him showing up during this time period is Avengers number 40 where um, I won't tell you the whole plot, but basically he gets word that there's something called the Cosmic Cube, which is on the floor of the seabed, um, floor of the ocean, and he uh, gets hold of it, and the Avengers are searching for it. And so, of course, they fight, fight, fight for an issue before ultimately it falls through a crack in the ground 
I, I don't recall exactly how an earthquake and it goes down to the mole man's lair where <laughs> he doesn't recognize what it is. He thinks it's just a kid's bauble from the surface world. So he just leaves it there. Um, and that's the last appearance of Prince Namor in the Avengers. I think I've, ex oh, he also shows up in one X-Men issue. I want to say that it's issue number six, but please don't hold my feet to the fire on that. It's one of the first uh, 10 issues of the X-Men where Magneto says, hey, Prince Namor is in fact a mutant. He's a hybrid, but he's a mutant and he's so powerful, he should be part of my brotherhood of evil mutants. Right. So he tries to recruit him. Uh, Namor doesn't take orders from anybody. And so the X-Men try to stop this alliance from happening. Ultimately, Magneto turns on and betrays uh, Namor. Namor cleans his clock and says, I'm done with this mutant argument. Don't bother me. And he goes back to Atlantis. I think that's it. I think that's all his appearances in the Silver Age up to the Tales to Astonish stretch, which leads yeah. into the Bronze Age. Right. And didn't he do a, a, a supervillain team-up? That was a series with him and Dr. Doom. Those were yes. new stories, right? I will call that Bronze Age. Yeah, and I am, 70s. I'm unacquainted with them because uh, I stopped collecting in about 72. I don't believe those had come out, so I'm I'm not qualified to, to speak on them. You may be more familiar with them. I, 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 I collect them, but I haven't. It's one of those things where I'm collecting them, but I'm not reading them. But I just knew that that was a... And he's like... Like Magneto, he kind of comes and goes from being villain to anti-hero to hero. You know, he he, and we're going to address that in this issue. We're fixing the cover uh, right now. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. Yeah. All right. As we said, this is Namor, the Submariner number one. Uh, it is writer is John Byrne, artist is John Byrne, our inker is Bob Wycheck, uh, colorist is Glennis Ween Oliver. Letter is Kenny Lopez. Cover arts by John Byrne. Our editor is Terry Cavanaugh, and our editor in chief is Tom DeFalco. Uh, this has a cover date of April 1990, and I think a release date of February 6, 1990. Uh, 32 pages, 23 of story. Uh, I found this is only reprinted in one place. It's Grandson of Origins from 1998. So, a place you can find this reprinted. Although I thought it was in the John Byrne, uh, Marvel Omnibus, but I didn't it's break my to look in, at uh, it. It's in Marvel Visionaries, a trade paperback that collects the first nine issues of this series. Okay. And that's Mike what I've got that. in my hands. Okay. Mike, for some reason, didn't have that on his list. I, I, I didn't dig deep into it, but it's, it's available out there. You can find it. Uh, story is called Purpose, and our players are Namor, uh, Caleb and Carrie Alexander, and brief appearances by Phoebe and Desmond Mars. Uh, our story goes, our biologists, Carrie and Caleb Alexander, come across a seriously disoriented Namor. He was assumed dead, killed in the Atlantis Attacks cross company-wide crossover months before. Fortunately, Namor has been a pet project of Caleb Alexander ever since Namor saved his life as a kid. Namor learns that his past personality fluctuations have been caused by an oxygen imbalance in his blood due to his hybrid human Atlantean makeup. And Caleb has devised a recycling device to correct the problem. Namor decides to change the direction of his life. Using the vast wealth of a sunken treasure, 
He launches a new company called Oracle Incorporated and draws the attention of the power-hungry Mars twins. To be continued. That was a that was a quick synopsis that I got sure off was. line. <laughs> well, I I uh I didn't have time to write my own. That's okay. But to your point, this is really, this is all placeholder or placeholding. This is just sets up. It introduces our main characters, Namor, which we already know. It introduces uh, the Alexander uh, family, which is Caleb and her daughter, Carrie. Uh, It introduces the Mars twins, who are kind of going to be the protagonists of this. And it introduces Namor's uh, kind of his mission statement that he's going to uh, change his so life, change his direction. Right. It's it's very, uh, I found it very environmentally heavy, which was probably a, a, something that was running through the 90s that he talks about that the surface world is polluting the oceans and that they are destroying the planet. So he's going to uh, set up a secret, the secret company, Oracle, which was based on the ship that his, father uh captain mckenzie i think was yes. on when he met namor's mother they fell in love and then he was the offspring of that so and it's also the name of caleb's ship he became a marine biologist so he's got a big research ship called oracle so namor wants to and he's going to stay in the shadows he think the world thinks he's dead because he died in the atlantis attacks which was led by uh, Atuma when he attacked the surface world. And that crossed over, I think it was in all the annuals in all of Marvel. And neighbor, I guess, died. I haven't read that in, in years, but he died as a result of that. So the world thinks he's dead and he wants to keep it that way. So he's going to let them be like the figureheads and they're going to run it and be his proxy. And he will set this corporation up and use all this measured, buried treasure that's just all over the, the ocean floor as his um, his uh, funding. So I thought it was interesting that this struck me as very Lex Luthor-like. You know how when Byrne introduced Luthor, instead of being a mad scientist, he was this power-hungry, Ruthless. corrupt businessman. And that's yes. kind of what Namor is becoming a businessman in this. This is very, it has to do with a lot of finance, business, and things like that throughout this, especially with the Mars um, twins. Um, so I thought that was interesting. He's kind of taken, although in this case, he does go out and do superhero stuff too, even though he wears a suit and runs this big corporation. Yeah, he says in the first first issue or first two, three issues that he wants to stay out of the limelight, but it's like a naked man flying over New York City is, <laughs> Not going to be terribly easy to keep under wraps, and people do recognize him. Uh, I was unaware that I didn't buy Atlantis Attacks. I didn't. I just have a vaguest impression of that. I know that it sparked some terrible arguments between Vern and uh, Peter David. Um, I so the whole idea that Namor was considered to be dead prior to this that caught me off guard. I had no idea what they were talking about. I had forgotten so my, that until I looked it up to find out why. My question to you is, did they write him out of the Marvel Universe as if he was dead? Or was that a charade that, that he and or the characters pulled or an explanation to the rest of the, the Marvel Universe? Because I think it's two. I don't think they would ever kill off a character 
No, I think it was it was a money. it was a situation where he and I can't remember the storyline. He probably sacrificed himself to save to everything, right? And in that process, it's like, ooh, is he dead? It's just it's just a it's, it's a comic book trope, you know? Is he is he gone? Yeah. So that then he can pop up wherever he wants. I I can't uh, I can't imagine that Burn was. Uh, this is kind of when Byrne had come back to Marvel. He had been at DC doing Superman, and I think that had ended. And then he came back, and he was doing this. And I think he might have been doing the Avengers that we covered, the West Coast. He might have been doing these about the same time, kind of concurrently. Some place um, along here is also Alpha Flight, although I, I, I don't know. I think that might have been earlier in the eighties. That's earlier. I think that's when he talked about when he cro- that crosses over with Sue Storm and the the Master up yes. in the uh, Arctic. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's earlier, which okay. is interesting in that because if you look at the way he draws Namor in those issues, he does. He gives him the big forehead, uh, kind of. I think the way he was originally drawn. Yeah. And in this one. He's not. He just. He looks like. Uh, he almost looks like Black Adam. He's got kind of slick back hair and the arch yeah, eyebrows. Sure, um, sharp widow's peak in the middle of yeah. the forehead. Yeah. Uh, uh, you're right. I I miss that. The the the, the head is, is not flat as it almost mm-hmm. always has been depicted earlier, which I kind of like. That adds distinction when when you've got a drawing of couple couple characters and you can't figure out who's who. The fact that he's got pointed ears and a flat head, <laughs> that makes him stand out. Yeah, he looks uh, a little, he does look a little, you know, other than the fact that he's got the pointed ears and he's got the little uh, wings on his feet, the ankle wings. He looks basically, he looks human. Yes. Um, what did you think of, because we kind of, and I didn't go into it deeply in the, the, the description or synopsis, but it's burned right off the bat determines that Namor's personality fluctuations are due to the fact that because he's a hybrid, he says if he spends too much time in the water, he gets uh, deprived of oxygen. He spends too much time in the air, he gets like oversaturated with oxygen, if I understand it right. So he, he becomes like an intoxication. That is to explain so all his of his erratic... Exactly. All his erratic behavior throughout all his appearances up till now. And then Caleb has just happened to come up with some type of a, it looks almost like a uh, uh, blood transfusion that, machine. Yeah, or blood. a thing that uh, dialysis. It looks like it somehow filters, yes. filters it out. And I think he gives him a, uh, he later, I think he gives him some kind of a monitor that will tell him. If he's in the air, oh, you've been in the air too long, you better go in the water. If you're in the water, you've been there too long, you need to go in the air. So he knows to kind of switch so he won't, you know, go and become erratic again. And I thought that was, I still don't know how that sits with me. I don't think I like it. I don't like the fact that that's the reason why uh, sometimes I object to Byrne feeling that he has to explain everything. He has to give it a, kind of a grounded scientific reason. And this is his, this feels like something that as a, as a comic reader growing up, he read these stories. He's like, that makes no sense. You know, here he's a, here he's attacking the 
the surface world and here he's aiding aiding us or he's a good guy that doesn't make any sense so he's come up with this uh idea that he's got some kind of a blood imbalance that's the reason why he keeps switching switching sides and i don't i just don't know if i like that or not i'm just the opposite i thought this was brilliant um you know as burn always goes ahead and he fixes things that he sees needs mm -hmm. fixing uh, I thought it was brilliant. It was straightforward, a little bit impractical, uh, but hey, it worked for me. His uh, his appearances that I rattled off at the beginning of this uh, podcast, he's all over the board. He's a hothead. He's a logical thinker. He's impulsive. He's moody. Uh, it he depending on who was writing the story or the needs of the plot, he's been written with a lot of funky different moods and as they wanted to pivot him into more of a hero, he became more level-headed, but not exclusively so. Then they started playing, at times, with his amnesia, because that yeah. was the trope, the excuse for why he hadn't been seen prior to Fantastic Four number four. So I, it works for me. Uh, I, you know, Burn in the first issue here is setting up all the chess pieces. He's setting up the chessboard, introducing the characters, their relationships and basically gives an explanation for uh, for uh, Namor's uh, erratic behavior. By the way, I think the correct pronunciation is Namor, but as a kid, I didn't know how to pronounce it. So I turned to my mom and said, Mom, how do you say this? She looked at it, N-A-M-O-R. She said, Hammer, Namor. So I learned it as Namor, and I will occasionally slip. You'll <laughs> you'll find, uh, without thinking about it, I'm going to revert to my childhood and call him by the wrong name in this series. So, um, you know, it's potato, potato, uh, tomato, tomato, same character. It's just how do we yeah, learn the, um, the The new Black Panther film, they call him Namor. Great. They put the emphasis on the first syllable. Yeah. I've always heard it Namor, and I don't know if that's just from hearing other people talk, you know, um, with, well, it's with you. It's kind of like Magneto, Magneto. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think I think Namor is the correct pronunciation, but as a kid reading it on the printed page, you had no idea. So you don't know. whatever it no. was, whatever no. you said in your head, that became your canon. Uh, what else do they do in issue one? Oh, there's a series of prologues and epilogues. They're basically different chapters as mm -hmm. he sets up the the. Uh, Sets up the, the, the book. And it really kind of threw me at first because the, after the first page, there's a two-page spread. This seems to be a pattern in the book. Pages two and three in every issue, there's going to be a two-page spread. In essence, a large uh, panel, a blow-up of whatever is going on, whether it's Namor or a fight or uh, the supervillain or, or whatever. And on this uh, third page, it says, Epilogue 1. The boiling of the blood as Namor's throwing his fit. Epilogue number one. Yeah. Epilogue from what? He's just starting like, the book. Yeah, I don't. I didn't get that either. It's more like be like prologue one because this right. is reintroduce us to Namor, and it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of artwork where he is flying out, and it's a it's a high angle, and it's kind of like a fisheye lens that, and it's that. That pose that Byrne loves to use, he's, it's, a, it's a Superman pose where he's flying out of the water and he seems to be in pain and he, you know, he lands on an island and that the, this is when the, 
Harry and Caleb see him and they weren't, I don't think they were out there looking for him. No. Even though he is, because they, well, they think he's dead too, but uh, they're out. Caleb has a heart condition. So that's why his daughter, uh, uh, who is not a marine biologist, but she is his kind of eyes and ears under the water. So she will go, he can't take the stress of diving. So she dives for him. And that's when they find that he's landed on some kind of a Polynesian island or something in the Pacific. And Namor runs across, <clears throat> I don't think it's, it's, it's told, it's just a, it's a tribe, a natives, which. This is based in reality, by the way. Um, oh, about them have, worshiping. There have been Polynesian tribes in the <laughs> Pacific that never saw any, any white man Western civilization but they did see giant bird flying through the air, which was an airplane in World War II. And literally, they built effigies of the plane and developed a religious cult around the airplane, not knowing what it was, but recognizing that it had to be from the gods. This is based loosely on reality. Yeah. Uh, this happened. Yeah, I can't tell you what the name of the people are, but... I, I thought it was pretty cool to see Byrne incorporate that because it, it's an echo, if you will, of Fantastic, no, sorry, Avengers 4, mm -hmm. where Namor frees um, the icebound Captain America from the Eskimos. Uh, there are Eskimos in um, the northern reaches uh, where that are worshipping a figure that's encased in ice, and nobody knows it at the time, but when... The ice melts. It's it's the long lost body of Steve Rogers from World War II, where he's been flash frozen, and uh, Namor has a hissy fit uh, as he comes through and grabs the thing and throws it into the water, and it, it drifts and melts, and the Avengers recover Captain America. That's enough of the Silver Age history. Virtually everybody knows that. But, uh, but this but, this is but, sort of an echo of that. It is, and I never I did not make that connection. But he has almost the same reaction because he says, you know, first I shall dispose of your preposterous icon, and then yep. he kind of gathers them up and he doesn't really hurt them, but he he probably scares the snot out of them because he, uh, he tears up their totem, and that's when the he he starts getting kind of dizzy, and that's when. Carrie shows up and he 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 sees her first as uh, Dorma, and then he sees her as uh, Marina, who are both deceased. I think they were both. Uh, he married. I forgot he had married Marina from Alpha Flight. They're both dead. So that's when Caleb thinks, "Oh, I think you know he's been, you know, theorizing this may be his problem all this time. So he already had this machine ready." And they convince him to come, you know, hey, you know, give us a chance. We'll help you out. Come with us. And they go back to the boat. And then he's hooked up this machine. And he says he's, you know, feeling better. And that's when he kind of decides to. Well, that's when we get a retelling his story. The, right. of the His father meet, meeting his mother, Princess Finn, uh, aboard. It's Leonard McKenzie. That's his father's name. So and we get a little, did, a little. Did they you get catch a chance the revision? To, Burn does a little subtle revision in this. Did you catch it? I did not. They marry. Oh. It's, it's very clear. He points out in this flashback that they married. 
which is that not was established in the, in the original. Uh, um, interesting. The results it, are the same. The rest of the tale is virtually identical, but each time this gets retold, it's it's played just a little bit differently between whether um, Captain McKenzie captures her and holds her prisoner, and that the child is res a result of that, or if you know. The, it, it keeps moving more and more towards the center, towards mainstream, instead of being um, offensive. Each each time a, a creator retells this tale, it's it's slightly more white bread. Uh, if if you follow what I'm saying. Well, yeah. Which doesn't that seem flipped? You would think that if this is from the '60s and this is when the story was maybe told. Yes. People were much more. Uh, conservative. So at that point, you think they would establish they absolutely get married. And then later, as as society gets a little more relaxed about what they feel about people living together and things like that, that then they would say, no, no, they just kind of live together uh, instead of or, establishing... Or, or shacked up on the boat. Yeah, yeah. Because that's, that, you know, it, the, the union does not last long before... Uh, the Atlantean troops come to take their princes back to Atlantis. Um, so, and, it's and funny how that... nobody knew that she was pregnant <laughs> at that point. Hell, yeah. nobody knew what the reproductive cycle of an Atlantean was at that point. So, uh, the, this story, um, the origin of, of Namor, has been retold at least three times, which I care I cover in in the other podcast. But first, it was in the the Golden Age where the Atlanteans are drawn as blue-skinned crustaceans. They have huge, bulging black eyes and tentacles out of their foreheads. Um, they're, they're very much undersea creatures, but they're, they, they, you know, they, they seem to be half human, half crustacean, or, or a lobster. It's never quite made and clear. And that's the Golden Age? Yes, and then when the next time the tale gets retold, it's by Roy Thomas uh, telling it in flashback in Submariner Number 1 when Namor gets his first solo book. Well, uh, Byrne does... Sorry, I, I take it back. It's probably uh, retold in Fantastic Four Annual Number 1 by Namor himself in front of the UN. Right. And it's a little yeah. bit more civilized, a little bit more human uh, figures, and then that's drawn by Jack Kirby. And then when then Roy Thomas scripts it in Submariner Number One, and I'm trying to think who the artist was at that point. Maybe John Basima. I think it was Basima. And Dorma's hair color changes, so instead of being black hair and with bulging eyes, she becomes, I believe, blonde, and uh, you know, much more human looking. Anyways, each time the story is told, Dorma becomes more and more human like, and more and more uh, traditional in terms of, oh, well, they didn't just shack up. They, they uh, fell in love. Oh, oh, the next time, oh, they got married. Um, you know, so this, this tale, his origin, has been retold a couple of times. That's well, my point. Well, and I think that maybe, maybe that's Byrne's sensibility coming in and saying, no, no, they, they need to get married. But he does, uh, to your point of, did he, did he, did he hold her? Did he hold her against her will? Byrne basically says she had frequent opportunity to make her escape, 
See? And but she didn't. So she stayed willingly. He's making sure yeah. she stayed willingly. Um, and that I like that better. I yeah. you know, it just it sits better, it it explains things better. Um anyway. Well, it's interesting how close this I mean, I, if I find at least I'm going from the movies, how close this story origin is just like Aquaman. He was the product of an uh, uh except the, I think it was the same thing. It was a a, a woman, yes. I guess they're what if they're called Atlanteans, what are they called in DC? And uh a male surface dweller. That so he's a hybrid as well. Except in that case, I think those those uh they're not purple or they're not blue, they're they're Caucasian looking. Yes. But, uh, yeah, I yeah. thought this was interesting. And then they I think it was your point, you said that uh, Magneto said that he was a mutant back in yes. the early X-Men. Yeah. That's really played up later, that they really lean into that he's Marvel's first mutant. You know, that's and they, they bring that up when they're talking about in this book, that he's, uh, you know, X-Men are not the first mutants. Uh, Namor is the first mutant. Um, yeah, we just don't think of him that way, but in fact he is. Little yeah. side note, the wings on his ankles, everybody assumes that that's his mutation from birth. In fact, if you, you look at the history of Namor, it's not. We take it as it is now, but in fact, those were artificially uh, stimulated by his mad scientist. I'm not going to get the name right, but it's like Zarkov or, or something. I can't recall the name. Uh, he was experimented on uh, to revive him after some atomic radiation put in a hyperbaric chamber and when he breaks out whoa look he's got wings on his ankles and then they were part of the legend ever since he's always that's, depicted with that and that's golden age that's not yes very much golden interesting. age. interesting i should have said that well i know that uh well i'm surprised that Byrne didn't address that he you know he's he's uh so willing to kind of explain everything that he does not expect, obviously he's not actually, his power of flight doesn't come from these little wings flapping. It's some kind of uh, telekinesis or some, some the way he kind of explained the way Superman flies. Superman flies by mentally pushing himself, I guess. So this has got to be something like that because he doesn't actually use these little, uh, and I, I've been told that they don't look like, they're drawn that way, but they look, they're supposed to look like fish fins. They don't look like bird feathers. They're like fish fins on his that, ankles. That's weird. I've never, never felt that. Oh, Hot Moose says that, they, that they resemble like the fins of a fish instead of a, like a bird. Um, okay. If, <laughs> if they want to say that, that's fine. I, their wings, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. patterned after uh, depictions of the god Mercury. Yeah, Hermes. Or yeah, the Hermes. Hermes. Yeah, Hermes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm looking it, at this. Uh, I was going to move forward to the uh, the flashback that um, Namor and and Caleb are talking about on the ship, and how they tie Caleb's um, childhood into Namor that he almost drowns, but Namor mm -hmm. saves him. I liked that. I mean, it's it's a cliche. It's kind of uh, hokey. But I liked it. It made motivation for him being obsessed with Namor and Namor's problem. Uh, it rooted it for me in reality. Otherwise, 
it's just terribly convenient that he just happened to have developed this and happened to have had it on the boat. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, that's it, too it, far, but it, I it like ties it, work grounding it. It, it. it kind of ties everything together, but your, your point, it does create a, a logical connection to why he would spend his whole life, you know, because he said he was going to be a, uh, oh, he had, well, he talks about having this bike that his father spent three years saving up for, and he was chasing Namor, and that's when he uh, drives off the dock and into the water, and his and his his uh, pant leg is caught in the chain, so the bike is dragging him down. And I thought it was interesting that he falls in, and he says he looks up, and this is, I guess, Byrne making a little social commentary. Uh, and he also makes a mention about how the bad the water tastes, so I guess it's the pollution angle again. It says, I remember looking up and seeing the dock workers standing at the water's edge, looking down at me and doing nothing. And I don't know if that's a racial comment that, because Caleb, we had mentioned Caleb was black. He's African-American. And is this burn coming that these white dock workers are not bothering to help this little black kid who they saw and could help fall into the water? Then, Bert, then of course, Neymar, I guess, saw it comes up and rescues him, even brings the bike back, even though it's busted. And then that's when he says he sells the bike and buys his first biology book. And that's when he decided to become a marine biologist. So, yeah, it is a, it is a trope, yeah, but it, it's a trope that works to explain why he so uh, spent years and years and years studying Namor that he possibly couldn't come up with this uh, little blood filter thing that he uses to uh, kind of cure his imbalance. I agree. That's the, it may be a subtle explanation of racism of the dock workers, not I think. helping, but the point of view is under the green water. You can't tell what race those dock workers are. Number True. one. And number two, the more simple explanation is they're fully clothed and they can't swim. So, you know, yeah, I'd I like to write. I'd I like to write. But there's yeah. another alternative explanation. Right. And I like to believe that they are either don't think they can do it or maybe they can't swim or whatever the reason is. But I know Burns and Maybe they to were yelling in. and screaming, getting Namor's attention. Maybe. Um, but it also, if they helped him, then, Bur then Namor couldn't come in and have this dramatic right. save. And then he is... Uh, uh, responsible for basically for changing Caleb's life and Caleb becomes a, you know, a, a marine biologist. And then they kind of go into uh, uh, partnership. And it's interesting. You said that in when Namor started his studio, which is <laughs> such a goofy idea that yeah. he used treasure, you know, cause that's just treasure. You know, and he says his people know about it. You know, I guess they have yeah. no use for it, but it's just they know about all this uh, gold and jewels and all this stuff that's just laying around. So he's, yeah, I'll just uh, I'm just going to take some of this stuff. And he brings it up and dumps it on the deck in front of uh, Carrie. And he's like, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to change the world. We're going to uh, um, help people and change, you know, and it's hints that he because he kisses her on the hand. Yeah. And he, he gives her a really. Um, it's a really cheesy line that um, he says, it's been weeks, we've been apart, and I have come to wonder how your hair might look floating 
on a sweet warm current or how your eyes might reflect the full moon over a calm dry sea it's a calm dark sea and she and he kisses her hand and she's like oh she's awfully kind of swooning so that's a little that's a little cheesy if not um if not old fashioned so i wonder if he's doing it tongue in cheek because he this might. is this isn't out of character for him he's always been portrayed as a ladies man mm-hmm. that he he there's something about him that he, when he wants to, to woo a woman, it works. But on the other hand, this is just kind of so out of left field. Yeah. I, I think he's... Um, I think he's I kind think of he's, just... He's, he's joking with her, I think. Joking with her, you think? I don't know that this relationship goes any further than this one panel. He's asking her to become his, his uh, eyes and ears, as you have been for Caleb, and so he's kind of sealing the deal by um, uh, flirting with her and, right. and kissing her hand. Yeah. But there's no question this, you know, he's a ladies man. There's been something about his fish smell that has just wooed ladies <laughs> for years. Well, I think it's uh, what I've always loved the way, starting the way Stan wrote him uh, back in FF, that he has always been written larger than life. He is... Uh, he's a monarch. He's super self-assured. He is headstrong. He is. He doesn't uh, put up with he people's nonsense. Do and he doesn't do things by half measures. No, he does everything big. Uh, right. From the way he talks, the way his gestures, and he's you know I am you know he has a a certain sense of entitlement that he is Prince Namor, you know the avenging son. Um, so I like when they when they would write someone like that, but he's never been to your point. He's a ladies man, but he's never been shown as being like forceful. He's always been very kind of gentle with Sue when he was, um, flirt with her. And I think that's the way Stan was writing it. That, you know, she's got this guy who's way over the top and you've got Reed who is quiet and studious and, I'm sure a very loving person, but he's very different. You know, one's a intellectual and one's a, like a jock. And I think good good comparison. Yeah. And I think Namor's attitude has been, well, why do you prefer that guy to me? I mean, look at me, you know, (laughs) look what I am. Why would you possibly want to be with that guy? But he never tries to force himself on her. And you don't think he's ever Mm -hmm. trying to done. He's ever done that with, um, any of the women that have been, uh, you know, either, uh, uh, what was his wife's name? Um, Lana. Dorma, uh, um, Dorma yeah. or Marina. Mar- well, either one there. I think the, his relationship with Marina was very short lived because she yes. turns out she was a, she's an alien. She was an alien and then tried to take over the world. And then I can't remember how she died. Did she just die or did he she get killed? kills her? He I does. He has to do, do her in to save the world. I don't recall if he uses the Black Knight's or Black Knight's sword or not, but it's in the Avengers. It's uh, tragic. I think yeah. it's a. I think Roger Stern may have written that story, but if he did, it was with the permission of uh, of Vern because they're those right. two writers are tight. Yeah. Well, it's a lot like uh, uh, Kirk and Edith Keeler. You know, Kirk has to let her die. In order yes. to for the, the the history to roll out the way it's supposed to, 
So it's a lot like, um, it's all like that, you know, I've got to, you know, sacrifice. It's, it's like, um, 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 in the end, it's the X-Men three, when Wolverine thinks he has to kill Jean Grey in order yeah. to save the world, that kind of thing. You know, that, that's, that's, a, that's closer to it. I think that's, yeah. that's more the motivation because he's heartbroken and he kind of goes into seclusion or he leaves the Avengers because of that. I don't recall, but uh, that, that, that's true. That's how that plays out. I, I, you know, you say that he never forced himself on, on the women. That's not quite true. If you read through Stan's, um, Stan Lee's fantastic four, he kidnaps Sue. He, um, he sets up the what's it, Oracle movie studios. Or maybe Probably. it's Neptune. I'm not. I can't remember the name of the movie studios off the top of my head. But he sets that up specifically to woo her, and to get rid of the other three. And of course, it gives Jack Kirby a wonderful opportunity to sketch all these actors from television and movies that you will recognize. You know, whether it's Hitchcock or Gunsmoke or uh, or Bing Crosby or whoever. He just does a wonderful job of doing caricatures of them. You can spot them all. It's a great issue. Uh, Fantastic Four number nine. But he kidnapped Sue at least once, if not twice, and takes her, you know, undersea. He does yeah. as right. much as the the code will allow. He does force himself on on the women until she finally rejects him. And and that changes the course of the book and the relationship. I like very much how Byrne portrays their relationship in Alpha Flight, and that they are friends now. That that he doesn't often call on her, and she doesn't often call on him. But when they do, there's a mutual respect of the right. fact that she's married right. to to Reed. Right. I really like that because that that tells you the relationship evolved. Well, the fact that she was willing to help him and not have to worry about Reed uh, becoming jealous or knowing, you know, to the point where they do kind of become allies between the FF and uh, Namor until, you know, it's the same problem you're going to have. But anytime you have uh, a character or a series of characters that are written by over decades and they're written by Different multiple, writers. multiple people. Yep. You're not going to get consistency. Yeah, you're going to get some guy. Well, I want to use Namor as a bad guy. Next guy, no, no, I think he needs more of a reluctant hero. So I'm writing like that. So you're going to get, you know, fluctuations, you know. And to your point, is whether I like it or not, it is a, a a way for Byrne to kind of set up the way he's going to move forward. Okay, this is how, this is why Namor was acting that way. I have solved that problem. He's not going to be acting that way. Moving forward, um, my my question is, and I don't know if he brings it up, is uh, his cousin Namoretta, Namorita, mm -hmm. wouldn't she have the same problem? Because she's a hybrid as well, isn't she? I'm not a hundred percent on her history, her background, um, but I think again, different writers have played her different ways. Whether she's you know, whether she's her cousin or she's an enamored teen who no play on no play on words intended there. She, she, she's smitten with her older cousin 
I don't know her relationship with him, and I think it changes depending on who the writer is. Um, so I'll reserve comment on that. As we go through this series, she comes in, in as a supporting character, mm -hmm. and we'll see how Byrne addresses that. Uh, yeah, it's only she, a couple she, yeah, issues away. She's introduced in the uh, in the next issue. Uh, and some we didn't really. I kind of glossed over it in my synopsis, but we are introduced to the Mars twins, um, Desmond and uh, what's her name? Um, Phoebe. Phoebe, who are villains right out of the nineties, from the way that they are drawn to the way he has got them dressed. Um, again, Byrne has always been had his kind of finger on the pulse of fashion, and these are very. Uh, 90s fashion outfits when she's coming she's got kind of this power suit on or a, kind of a big red or a big red coat and they run uh the mars corporation and what i didn't bring up was that she comes to see her brother and finds him in his gun room and he's about to commit suicide he's got a gun yeah. to his head and she grabs a gun goes off and he basically says which I thought this was a little of a trope too. He says, "Well, there's nothing left living for. Everything's boring. Everything's inconsequential and boring. I, I just, you know, I, I don't have any. I don't have any challenges." And that's when she brings up the fact that Oracle has bought uh, some company that he was interested in. Doesn't understand why they bought this company that was kind of floundering and uh, parallel conglomerate. Anyway. Yeah. So that kind of lights a fire under him. He's like, oh, well, now I've got something. I'm going to find out who this mysterious owner of Oracle is and why they're buying this other company. So that kind of, you know, we start off with this guy thinking, well, I'm just going to end it all because I've got nothing to live for because I've, I've, I've accomplished everything. And then now he's got this new challenge, and that's what stops him from taking his own life. And that's kind of where it ends. You know, they're... Uh, they're, uh, that's, so they're going to be the main uh, antagonist. Yeah, um, antagonist, yeah, going through this this story. And I think he had he only lasts up to about the 19th issue, and then after that, I think he's gone. I don't know well, about her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't want to do any spoilers, but yeah, yeah. There, are, there are developments here. They are twins, biological twins. Uh, or fraternal twins. I, I don't know how to how to say that right. They're not uh, identical. He's uh, he's uh, right out of the, the gate. He's mercurial. He's uh, emotional. Um, on borderline on unstable. I don't know how else to put that, which will play into this series. So the fact that Bernie introduces him about to commit suicide out of boredom. Uh, that was a quite a shock. It was for a, for a comic approved book. Yeah, um, and it's, it's carefully staged. There's no question about what's going on, but it's carefully no. staged that that it's not going to happen. I th the other thing I want to point out is the very last panel on the very last page uh, when they come up with the name of the new company, Oracle Oracle Incorporated. There's a profile of this very tall building that they're in. To me, that that looks like one of the uh, World Trade Center buildings. I think it is. I think it's mostly one of the Twin Towers. Extremely tall, narrow building. 
Um, but there's only one. But boy, that's what it evokes for me. And so uh, I think know, that's what I it think, is. I think it's supposed to be one of the Twin Towers. It's an interesting setup to the series. It certainly sets all the chess pieces on the board ready to start the game. Um, there's a couple more that have to be added as we go through the series. But uh, I, I had no idea that, that Byrne was going to go in the directions where he was going. I should also mention that when Namor was in Tales to Astonish, it was a split book, only 10 to 11 pages per episode. Then finally, when they split the split books apart and launched the solo titles, he got for the first time in his own book, 20 pages, Submariner number one. That series from 1968 ran, oh, what, 60, 72 issues or so over a course of five years and changed directions a couple of times as they tried to figure out who is this Submariner and how are we going to depict him. One of the major themes of that in the late 60s, early 70s, he became an ecological crusader, I don't know, about in the 20s of his series. And so he would frequently expose, um, you know, make, make love, not war, uh, protect the earth, Earth Day. He sort of became that champion, that mouthpiece. And that is going to be reflected in this new series that Byrne is doing. He's taken a comprehensive look at the character in all his incarnations in the past several decades. And he's going to pull... The, the significant history and events to weave his tale. And one of them is protector of the oceans, protector of the earth. And there's going to be an ecological yeah. event on this. Well, and you're going to see it fairly quickly here as each one or two issues takes a different theme or approaches a different world problem. But again, I'm, uh, we're, I'm previewing where we're going in this series uh, because I have the knowledge. It's not, clearly indicated here but that's that's where we're going folks you're right i think he is uh and burn burn is very reverent of the past so he will often take storylines and weave them into and kind of interpret them for his stories so i think he had to your point kirk he has taken all of the namor that has previously been published and he's kind of distilled them into his version of namor so he's yes. taken kind of the stuff he likes to where he is, uh, but instead of it's instead of being more of a you know like an activist, he's using it by because I think he says at one point he says I, he says I would say it. Um, uh, he's going to finance it, right? And he says I'm going to use it. I'm going to use what the only thing that the surface world understands is money. So instead of just being, he's not going to just make a sign and get on a picket line. He's going to start a corporation that would, uh, that's going it, to, it, think about what the big corporations of today, the Googles, the Apples, the Facebooks, they're very tied into doing social work and uh, PR, you know, for, for lack of a better term, you know, PR stunts that about, Look how sustainable we are. Look what we do to give back. We do, we, you know, volunteer, that kind of thing. So he's kind of uh, 
getting ahead of himself and being at this is a corporation that yes, it's worth millions of dollars, but it's doing good. Because not Namor doesn't need the money, you know. And I think that's why the t- Mars twins are right out of kind of a '90s what we call like a psychological thriller because uh, this Desmond Mars seems to be, uh, to your point, he is um, maybe I don't want to say he would be. They consider him he's unstable. I want to say he's probably on the spectrum. But I don't think that's right, but he might he's be. Ruthless. He is ruthless. He's amoral. He is, uh, he's, uh, he's kind of, um, Lex um, Luthor. He is Lex Luthor and that, but he's not quite as manic as Luthor, but he is, he's a, he's a corrupt, uh, businessman that will do anything. And he kind of plays with people's lives and he'll do whatever he wants to get what he needs. And now he's getting, and and now he's got this new goal to find out who, um, you know, whoever owns Oracle, he doesn't know who that is. Um, from the few, we only see him in two pages. Does he look like Byrne is using like a David Bowie as a reference for him, or a well, Mick Jagger? No, uh, I would say Bowie is closer. Yeah, but not a not identical. Um, yeah, no, no, but that Darryl, looks like angular face, um, big lips, kind of big pronounced lips, hairstyle, reddish hair that matches hers. They are very much two peas in a pod. They look so similar, and that's going to become interesting down yeah. the road. She, I think, is a little more uh, stable than he is, but it seems like he's maybe the one that's more running the company. But um, it's, it's interesting that, that this is a very 90s book. I mean, even the front cover, it says, uh, you know, out of the depths into the 90s. Yep. And this is a very 90s just from the fashion and, and from the, the storytelling that Burns giving us. So it's a, it's a, it's a good, I, I haven't read these issues in for years. So it's a, it's a good starting point that he, you know, it really has into your point. It's just, it's just place setting. He's just introducing us to people and setting all the pieces in motion. And then he can, and he does the next issue. He kind of gets right into the action. So yeah. we're going to, um, uh, we, we spent a long time on this yeah. first issue in the history of, of Neymar for those that are still with us. Uh, we're we're going to try to do this in dyads and two issue um, bites for the next year or so to look at issues two and three and maybe uh, four and five. Uh, we have done, I don't recall the issue numbers, but we've done around nine, 10, 11 before. Uh, so we'll have to to see how we want to address that. Uh, but we're going to we're going to run through about two years worth of content of this series. At least that's the idea as we start this um, name or series. Yeah. So, uh, if you're interested to see it, um, uh, you know, you may want to look at the past in Imperius Rex. Uh, on the other hand, you may just want to follow Burns efforts here. If you're not familiar with it, we'll go through it. Maybe a little bit less detail as we go through two issues per show. Yeah. It'll be a little quicker, little quicker, uh, run, but to your point, this was, you know, giving a lot of backstory to Namor himself and kind of doing all the setup. So this is this episode for us is kind of our setup episode. And then I think when we go through these, it'll be um, they'll go pretty quick because um, I don't think we have to spend them as much time as you normally do when they're when all of us run a show. Right. You got any, uh, any final words on it, Kirk? I like the uh, the series very much. I love 
Byrne addressing the problems that he thinks needs to be fixed. He, I find him very creative and very logical in what he does. Love him or hate him uh, for, for how he changes the history and modifies or turns the clock back. Um, but I love going for the ride with him. Um, just, I think it's, it's brilliant work. And I think this series really flexes his muscles as he incorporates various underused characters from the Marvel universe to tell the tales that he wants to tell. And, uh, there, yeah. you know, they, I won't, no, no spoilers here, but you're going to see some of the, the characters from the fringes of the Marvel universe made very logical and very deadly as quickly as next issue. So um, yep. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it, this is a lot of fun. It's a point. It, it's uh, to your point, whether you, whether you agree with Byrne or not, he makes choices and he kind of sticks to them. So he's not, he's not phoning it in. He is either whether the choices are right or wrong or whether you agree with them or not, he is making decisions on how he wants to portray a character or a storyline that fit. You know, he doesn't shy away from doing what he wants to do. If he wants to change something, he's going to. So he's I, also I to playing kind of a, for that. He's playing a long game too. He has maybe not all two years that he was on the book all plotted out, but he has themes. He has ideas. He knows where he wants to lead you, and that's something that I don't get the flavor with some of the other people who write comics. Some of them are just a flash in the pan. Oh, I need an issue next month. You know, come up with a one-shot story. And maybe yeah. that's true in the 60s, that uh, there was no guarantee that a kid was going to be able to find the next issue. But this was put out in the 90s. Comic book shops were very much uh, the medium of, of selling these books. And so you knew that you had people coming back month after month after month with poll lists or poll orders that we're going to be there and follow a continued story that's interweaved and, you know, subplots that will pay off several issues down the road. It's, it's a different type of writing and I really enjoy it. Well, it's uh, not the, the, they seem to be now they are just, everything seems to be written for a trade. It's like, write a four issue, five issue arc, then get off the book and let somebody else come on instead of staying with the book and you can develop a character and, develop to your point a longer story form of storytelling that you can you've got story a and inside story a you've got the beginnings of story b and then you move on to story b and you've got c so they all kind of fit overlap as as you move along and i think burn does that rather well he does uh, so it irritates the hell out of some people that he does that but i you know i enjoy that you can typically see how he is uh usually they're one page inserts or or how he shuffled the pages or well okay mm -hmm. i don't have room in this issue for for this subplot to be teased so i'll hang on to that page and move it over here i, I don't know exactly how he does it but it, it's usually one page beats and i i like it you know yeah well they, they do that in I the uh the second it. issue he has like a like a one page insert of a character that gets brought in later uh it's the last thing i'll say because i'll be running kind of long uh, I think his FF run is a prime example of that. I mean, if you read the what, 60 odd issues that he did of that, he has several plots that start and they sprinkle stuff in and then it gets revealed later and then it's paid off. And that's a just a kind of a textbook example of the way to do that from his run. Now, it also makes you want to stick with the book 
It doesn't make you want to jump on and jump off. You want to stick with it because you've got a con artists can come and go, but if you've got a consistent writer, at least, then you've got uh, a storyline that you want to come back to every time instead of just coming on for this story and then jumping off and then maybe jump on later. So. All right, let's give our standard sales pitch. If you have feedback, if you want to reach us, you can find us on the Facebook page under Third Degree Burn. You can send us email at gottagetburned at gmail.com. Um, I'm on Facebook. You can find me there. Uh, Tim, I think you're on Facebook. I'm on but, Facebook. Okay, I'm on so Third Degree Burn. There are a lot burn. of different ways to give us feedback, but we'd love to hear what you think. If we're full of crap, we'd like you to correct us, or if we've stated something wrong and or overlooked something, uh, I'd appreciate another point of view. So uh, let us know. Yeah, and either through Facebook or the the third degree burn uh, email is the best way to to get a hold of us. That way, we can uh, you can leave a longer comment on Facebook, obviously through email, than you can on Facebook. But we'll we'll post these on Facebook. So that's where you see these the new shows are coming up. Well, Kirk, I want to thank you for coming on. This was a lot of fun. Um, always a pleasure to, to, cause you always bring something interesting to, uh, what we cover because you've got a much more of a encyclopedic history of what, if you're into something, you can really just pull it out of your head and I have to do a lot of research because I forget that stuff. So I'm I always appreciative of the sixties. I was there just after the Marvel universe was birthed, but, uh, never, never quite bought them all, but I at least appreciated Stan and Jack's creation of the Marvel universe and how things interacted until we get to about 72. And then all of a sudden I check out for about eight years. So when you get to that, some people call it the bronze age where, you know, we, we hit on it when it's a talk about the Marvel team up, um, super villain team, villain up. team up. Yeah. I, uh, I'm a blank. I, that's not my period. I know that Burns started flexing his muscles and did some great stories in there. Um, but somebody else is going to have to help share on on those when we get to them. Yeah, that's fine. That's all I've got. That's what... Okay, well, for uh, Third Degree Burn, I am Tim Elliott. I'm Kurt Greenfield. All right. Thanks, everybody. Stronger than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. This is the Prince of the Deep. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.